0: Amen. Indeed, a great joy to have everyone with us today, those who are here in person, those who are watching online, and it's a great, great, great time to have everybody. Baruch Hashem. And what a great season we're entering into. This week is the week of Purim. Amen. Hallelujah. We just finished the Megillah Esther study. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it brought great understanding to your mind. And uh, Baruch Hashem. That's good, because we don't issue refunds.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right.
0: So, we are entering into a new Megillah, Yay. the Megillah of Ruth. <laughs> this is the root of the matter. The Megillah of Ruth, who, as, uh, as uh, uh, Amet reminded me, her name backwards means dove. Ah, that' great, Dove. So let us say the Barakah, because we just have two hours. <laughs> Let's get into the Megillah reading. Blessed are you, Adonai our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with His commandments and has commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring, and our offspring's offspring, and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. Amen. And the uh, blessing of the Megillah, Baruch Adonai, Elohimu HaOlam Asher Kidshanu al Megillah. Amen. So let's turn to the book of Ruth. And today, we're, we're going to be reading the first nine verses, but really, we won't be talking about them today. <laughs> today is going to be an uh, introduction, really, to Ruth. We'll get into the verse-by-verse um coming up. Ruch So let's read the first uh, few verses here in the book of Ruth. And it happened in the days when the judges judged that there was famine in the land and a man went from Bethlehem and, and Judah, Bethlehem, he went from the Bethlehem, went from Bethlehem and Judah to sojourn in the fields of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and his two sons were named Malon and Chilion, the if, if, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. They came to the field of Moab and there they remained. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpha, the other Ruth, and they lived there about 10 years. The two of them, Maalon and Chilion, also died and the woman was bereft of her two children and of her husband. She then arose along with her daughter-in-law to return from the fields of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that Adonai had remembered his people, Zachor, by giving them food. She left the place where she had been, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and they set out on the road to return to the land of Yehuda. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May Adonai deal kindly with you as you have dealt kindly with the dead and with me. Now I want to back up just for a second. Because this is the time of the judges. So we have not yet had King David, obviously. We've not yet had King Solomon, obviously. But notice that it referred to the land as the land of Judah. So when people say, well, it was after the two kingdoms that you have Jews from Judah... Just know that this was all of Israel and it was all called Judah back then. We'll get to that in a second. So it says, May Hashem grant you, grant that you may find security each in the home of her husband. She kissed them and they raised their voices and wept. So we'll leave it there and come back to that next week. She kissed them and they raised their voice and wept. In the Art Scroll Humash book on Megillah Ruth, the overview to Ruth is subtitled Ruth and the Seeds of Mashiach. Ruth and the Seeds of Mashiach. Ruth is indeed a book about the seeds of Mashiach. It's a book about a lot of things. I uh, love the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth has always been particularly special to me, largely because of my uh, drive to my insight my passion about bringing non-jews into the kingdom bringing everybody into the covenant that's what i'm passionate about conversion is what i'm passionate about and uh it's what i've always been passionate about i've always been passionate about bringing people in into the kingdom i was uh, evangelical if you will in that res- in my respect judaism I should just tell you, has always been a very evangelical religion up until recently. I'm, I'm in, I've been reading a book, a very uh, extensive book, another extensive collegiate level history book on Jews and conversion and proselytization that was written, compiled in the, and put together in the, in the mid-1960s uh written in part by or i should include i should say including the works of the two authors of the books from the 1930s and 1940s the treatise on the subject which is considered uh to be uh the most concise treatise on the topic of proselytization today if you ask jews (coughs) about um, um, jewish proselytization they'll tell you that we don't proselytize judaism has never been a religion that proselytize, we just, you know, if you wanted to come, we'd kind of let you come in. But otherwise, we're just like, you can be a Gentile, you can be a righteous Gentile, all is well. (laughs) I'm here to tell you, I don't know that I can stand up here and say that I'm the authority on this topic, but I can just tell you that this is a topic that I've studied extensively for a long time. None of what I just said is true. It is absolutely positively, fundamentally not true that Jews did not proselytize. If you read a history on it, you find that to be a fact. That not only did we proselytize, proselytize, but we were vehement about it. We were excited about it. And that people came to Judaism even in times when... It was deadly. Deadly. By the way, this is an aside. I was reading a story just yesterday out of this book. And uh, this will teach you a lesson, teach us all a lesson of the dangers of Lashon Hara. So there was a count. A count. He was in the gemantra. No, he wasn't. That was a joke. That was a joke. There was A count. And he was from, uh, um, like, Lithuania, that, that area. And he was a noble, and he went to Paris to study. When he went to Paris, there was a, uh, during one of the breaks, he noticed a man out in the courtyard reading a book to a little boy in a strange language. He went up to the, the man and said, what are you reading, and what language are you speaking? He says, I'm reading the Torah in its original Hebrew. And he said, will you teach me? Will you teach me this language? So he taught the count, this language, and long story short, he, this man converted to Judaism. And, and his wife converted with him. They converted in Holland, <coughs> in that area which was a prolific area um, for converts back in those days. And he moved to the Holy Land, was in the Holy Land for a little while, and then decided to go back to his homeland where he became a Rosh Yeshiva and a rabbi of the community. Very well respected. And everybody kept it a secret that he was a convert because back in those days, it was dangerous. So everybody kept it a secret. One day, a boy came into the yeshiva. He was acting up. And so being the headmaster, being the Rosh Yeshiva, he hit the boy and said, Stop acting like a goy. So the daddy of the little boy got mad at the, because how dare you discipline my child? Obviously, he was from the future and went back in time. <laughs> Probably the little boy needed batted at home. He wasn't getting it, is why we had to have it at the school. But <sighs> This is a place where you're going to get the truth, like it or not. Here we come. <laughs> so the daddy decides to go out and tell the authorities, you know that guy in there, he's really, listen to this. You think times have changed? No, they haven't. That guy in there is really just an apostate Christian. He's not a real Jew. He's just—he converted to Judaism. He's not really Jewish. Sound familiar? Oh, wait a minute. This guy converted under Orthodox auspices, but he wasn't accepted. What? I'm sorry. I thought it was there was this magic universal court that accepted all converts of all time. Oh, it doesn't exist. Oh, that's interesting. So here's the problem with Lashon Hara. That's Lashon Hara. The guy got on Twitter, tweeted it out. Here it is now. He's not—he's not a real convert. The authorities saw his Twitter post, and they went. They arrested the guy. You know what they did with him? They tortured him, and they eventually buried him alive in the city square. But you know what the convert did while he's being buried alive? He said, bless you, Lord our God, King of the Universe, for this opportunity to sanctify your name. That's the danger of Lashon Hara. That's just an aside. So we have the book of Ruth. This is the seeds of Messiah. Let me just read here some introductory passages from, uh, from the Talmud and the Midrash and the Zohar. From the Talmud, Baba, 38b. Because of two good doves, pure and righteous, Ruth the Moabite and Nehemiah the Ammonite, the Holy and Blessed be He, showed mercy to two large nations. Ammon and Moab, and did not destroy them. Now, what's remarkable about this is that Ruth, of course, is the great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of the Mashiach. She's the great-grandmother of King David. She and Boaz had Obed, Obed had Yishai, Yishai, that is Jesse, had King David. She's a Moabitess. Who's Moab? Moab, if you remember the story of Lot, Lot was told to leave uh, uh, Sodom because God was going to destroy it. He left Sodom, destroyed it. His wife became a pillar of salt because she longed for Sodom. And now he finds himself in a cave with his two daughters. And his two daughters, as far as they're concerned, it's like the days of Noah. They have... God has destroyed the whole world. They didn't realize that he destroyed just two big cities. As far as they were concerned, he destroyed everything. The problem is, is that their husbands refused to leave. And as a result, they were killed in Sodom. So what they do, they decided that they need to repopulate the earth. So they got their father drunk and then they had relationship with him. So from that, Moab was created and Am- Ammon was created. We have, we have two whole civilizations that were, cre- were begun with incest. And from that came the spark of Mashiach. So don't let anybody ever tell you, what, you don't have a big Jewish pedigree? Neither does Mashiach. Now, why does it say Ruth and Naaman? Because Ruth is, as I said, the grandmother of Messiah. Mashiach, but Naaman was, was the wife of one of Solomon's sons, who is also in the lineage. So both Moab and Ammon are in the lineage of Mashiach. The lineage of Mashiach, you understand, began with incest. Now, well, there's, a, there's a reason why this is. Because Hashem is trying to show us that He extracts holy sparks from even the most profane places. So that anybody who says, I reject you because you're a convert. I reject you because you didn't grow up in a Jewish home. I reject you because you don't have big some big fancy pedigree. You didn't come from... <laughs> you can say, well, God didn't reject the Mashiach because He came from Moab. Not to mention the fact that uh, that his, he have Amon. Who else is in the lineage of Mashiach? Rahab. Rahab, who ran a bar- brothel in Jericho. And yet, she too is in the lineage. She too is considered part of that heritage. You understand the heritage of Mashiach, the Zadik of all Zadokim, has this in his lineage. And so it's a message to us. It's, a, it's, it's actually a great message of love to us. Now, from the Holy Zahar, it says, there were two women from whom were built the seed of Judah, and from whom descended the King David, King Solomon, and King Mashiach tamar and ruth they both acted properly in order to do good with the dead now you have ruth who's Mobitus, and you have tamar who's tamar tamar was judah's daughter-in-law he married off his two sons they both died because of their sin he was supposed to give his next son to her but he was scared that she was the problem so he didn't want to give his son to her. So when he went to go visit, she had dressed up like a prostitute. This is all in the Bible, so I'm sorry if it's a little scandalous, but it's all in there. She <laughs> so dressed up like a prostitute. And he had relationships with her. And from that came Perez and Zara, the twins. And from Perez came Mashiach. So wait a minute. Now in Mashiach's lineage, not only do we have a Moabitess, not only do we have a Rahab the harlot, now we have Judah who slept with a prostitute in order to give birth to the Mashiach. And what do people say today about the mother of Mashiach Miriam? They claim that she was a loose woman, that she had an affair with a man, and that Mashiach was a Mamzir. We'll get to that in a second because there's, there's actually a connection to David and Ruth and all of that. From Breshish Rabbah, from the Midrash Rabbah. The tribes were occupied with the sale of Joseph. Joseph was occupied with sackcloth and fasting. Reuben was occupied with sackcloth and fasting. Jacob was occupied with sackcloth and fasting. Judah was occupied with taking a wife. And the Holy One blessed to what was he occupied with? with creating the light of Mashiach. <laughs> all those stories are all connected to the light of Mashiach. Ruth is the quintessential convert. In fact, we read the book of Ruth during the festival of Shavuot. And I, uh, when I was putting this study together this year with these five Megillot. I arranged it, and with God's help, because he's the one who really arranges it, ended up being so that we would have finished the book of Esther right before Purim, and we will finish the book of Ruth right before Shavuot. And we read the book of Ruth on Shavuot. Why? At Shavuot, there's an interesting offering that's given that's unlike any other offering. Two hollow, two loaves of bread are waved before the Lord, but this time they have leaven in them. All other sacrifices of grain are not allowed to have leaven. Why leaven? Because all the other grain sacrifices represent the Mashiach. These represent us. There's only two kind of people in the world. There's only Jews and non-Jews. That's it. So if you're all proud because you're black or white or brown or gray or red or blue, there's only two kind of people in the world. Either Jews or non-Jews. Right? So you wave the two loaves before Hashem, and sometimes in some communities they're, they're baked get together. Nobody knows why we do this, by the way. If you look up, why do we do this? Nobody can tell you why. There's all these different ideas. They represent the two commandments. We, we, bake, them, we bake them together. Why? Because the purpose is for the two people to become one people. To both become under the guise. Why do we, wa- why do we wave it at shovels? Why not we wave it at the Ola, the the Omer offering, for instance? Why do we wave it at Shavuot? Why? Because at Shavuot, we're we're celebrating what? Matan HaTorah, where we're celebrating the giving of the Torah, so that both kinds of people should be under the Torah. And they should become one people. So, another reason why they say that we read the book of Ruth at Shavuot is because David was born on Shavuot and he died on Shavuot. But the main reason we read it is because Ruth is the quintessential convert. This is what it actually says on on the Aish site about it, for instance. It says, another reason is because Ruth is the quintessential Jewish convert. And on the first Shavuot, when the Torah was given at Mount Sinai, each Israelite became essentially a Jew by choice. The reason we read the story about the quintessential convert on Shavuot is because it was at the giving of the Torah that we all converted. Let me say that again. It was at the giving of the Torah that we all converted. This is why Kepha stood up on Shavuot and said to a crowd of Jews that you all need to be mikfed. For the remission of your sins. Why? Because this is what happened at the first Shavuot. And now that Yeshua has come and been resurrected and the Ruach HaKodesh has come down. And we've seen tongues of fire just like we did at the first Sinai. And we've heard the Torah all in one language like we did at the first Sinai. And we have the wind just like the thunder and lightning in the first Sinai. Now all of us need to be mikfed. He's talking to Jews. There was no Gentiles there. Why were there no Gentiles there? Because it was a festival. It was Jews coming to the festival. Why would a Gentile come to the festival? All the Jews got mikfed. All of them got converted. What yeshiva did Kepha go to that he had the authority to convert people? (laughs) Who authorized that? Were they valid converts? I'm just wondering. Were they approved by the RCA? I'm just asking. What about the Heredi? Oh wait, the Heredi didn't exist yet. Think about it. People want to invalidate our converts, we better go back in time and invalidate all those converts there in the book of Acts. That's going to create a problem. They say that our our conversions here are not recognized by the state of Israel. What about all the converts that existed before the state of Israel existed? What about, I just said that in Holland, that was the main place, in the the Dutch regions of Europe, that was the main place where where, where converts were primarily converted historically. That was also where millions of Jews were murdered by the Nazis, which means that hundreds of thousands of them were descendants of converts. Were they real converts or not? Who could tell the difference in the gas chamber, I'm asking? God forbid the Nazis should enter into this. You think anybody in here is safe? You think, you're gonna, you think that somebody's going to stand up and say, well, he's not a real Jew? You think they're going to care? Come to my house. You see, I'm not kidding. There's a mezuzah on every door. We have a collection of kiddish cups.
1: <laughs>
0: Don't even start to look at the dreidels. It's like a museum. So it says, anyway, (laughs) when the Torah was given to Mount Sinai, it says each each essentially became a Jew by choice. That's why the Talmud and the Code of Jewish Law uses the Sinai experience as a basis for determining the requirements of all future converts. Do you realize that? Did you realize that, that our conversion process consists of three essential things and it all comes from the Mount Sinai experience. The first is of course mikveh as it says in Exodus 19:14 and 24:8 where we immerse in a mikvah. The second is milah, that's circumcision. All males must undergo circumcision why? Because the Israelites had circumcision before they left Egypt in Exodus 12:48 and also again in Joshua 5:5. 5, 5. Why do they Circumcised in Joshua five five because in the wilderness nobody circumcised anybody, and we were required. All converts are required to keep the mitzvot. That's from Exodus twenty four and verse three. That all converts, all Jews, are required to keep the mitzvot. So mikvah, milah, and mitzvot, the three M's, the three M's. And and it goes on to say that interesting the Torah intimates that the souls of every eventual convert were also present at the Mount Sinai. As it says, I'm making the covenant both with those who are here today before the Lord of God and also those who are not here today. Devarim 29.13. God said, I'm making the covenant with you who are here. And by the way, I'm making the covenant with those who are future to come. Interestingly, from Rabbi Monk's uh, commentary to... The book of, of Exodus chapter 18, the book of Yitro. It says Yitro heard, verse one 18:1. 1. It says, the present Sidra, he writes, which contains the Ten Commandments, bears the name of Jethro, a former idolatrous Midianite priest. This clearly demonstrates that the Torah does not belong solely to those who have Jewish descent. In fact, it is the universal law indirectly addressed to all men. Jethro is the example par excellence of a pagan leader who, upon recognizing the futility of the heathen cult, embraced the law of Israel. The same theme is repeated on the festival of Shavos, the anniversary of the giving of Torah, And this is why we read the story of Ruth, he writes. So I want to paint this picture for you. That in the Torah, the very very Sidra, the very parasha that deals with the receiving of the Torah is named after a convert. And when we receive the Torah, when we have the festival of receiving the Torah, Shavuot, We read the one book in the entire Bible named after a convert. Why? This is to teach us that the Torah is intrinsically connected to converts and bringing people under the wings of the Shekinah, extracting the holy sparks I submit to you a Judaism that does not proselytize is not a legitimate Judaism because it's not legitimately connected to the Torah because the Torah parashah is, is after a convert and the book we read at the giving of the Torah is named after a convert. What is the message God is sending us? Zakur. Remember Jethro. Remember. And by the way, Jethro's... Descendants populated the Sanhedrin. And Ruth's descendants populated the throne. The two seats of power and authority in Judaism were occupied by converts. <laughs> ah. This is revealing to us our inherent mission of being a light to the nations. There's been recently, and I just have to mention, I have to address it. There has recently been a, a messianic stance that has erupted in response to what I call the Ruth revolution. The Ruth revolution is people who hear this kind of message, and they say, you know what? This whole Messianic Gentile stuff is for the birds. I want to be a Jewish. What am I doing? What, what, I'm, I'm so sorry. I, I'm, not, I'm Rosa Parks. I'm not sitting at the back of the bus anymore. I know we're going to the same destination, but it's, you know, it's okay. We're all going to the same destination, but you sit at the back of the bus, and we sit at the front of the bus. It's like, no, no, no. We're not doing that. We're not doing this theological segregation. Jew and Gentile, one of the side. That's Jew and Gentile at the back of the bus, and the Jews at the front of the bus. But we're all on the same bus. <laughs> <laughs> what was Rosa's problem? She was going to get off. Same people, white, same place. White people going to get off. What's the problem? Why is she mad? Oh, because it's prejudice to make distinctions. You have adopted children. And you have natural children. Your natural children get steak. Your adopted children get meatloaf. That's fair. No. I like meatloaf. Don't get me wrong.
1: <laughs> but how?
0: But how do you think it would work out if every time you served your natural children better food than your adopted children? How would that make them feel? Hey, hey, ado- Hey, natural kids. We're going to go out and we're going to celebrate all week long in a sukkah. Uh, it's going to be fun. It's going be a blast. You adopted kids, you're not allowed in a sukkah. Y'all get two holidays and it's, we're not quite there yet. <laughs> now, we're doing the holidays. We're coming. with the one, boom. I Purim, Pesach, Shabbat, man, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Hanukkah. Wait, y'all just coming. Y'all just coming. Why are you sad? Jew and Gentile, one and Messiah. Come on. So the roofs of the world rise up and say, uh uh, we're done with it. We're out. We're out. Besides, it's a phony baloney, plastic banana, good time rock and roll theology anyway. There's no basis for it anywhere in the scriptures. No basis for it. No basis for it anywhere in Jewish thought and theology anywhere. You have to extract it. You have to twist it and pull it out Uh, from Paul's letters. That's the only place you can find it. Now, think about that. That's kind of scary, isn't it? The only place you can find it is in the letters, allegedly, allegedly, the letters of one man. And now it's become the theology upon which you hang your proverbial hat. Even though the Tanakh rejects it, and Judaism rejects it, and all Jewish literature rejects it. Come on, do I make my point here? Do I need to elaborate? I don't think so. Y'all are smart people. What makes our shalom, well, we're not, look, we don't, it's like I'm, I teach professors here. You've got to bring your game every week come up here with a Jesus loves you drosh man i get (laughs) booed off the stage my wife said no own egg i won't get the (laughs) meatloaf so so there's a (laughs) come on i only got an hour and a half here listen (laughs) man i'm not even gonna get to what i want to get to but that's okay Messianic stance got to deal with this. So there's a new messianic stance that has popped up to push back on the Ruth Revolution because we've got to make the messianic Gentile theology. We're gonna can't claw pride of our claws. Why we got to keep you on the back of the bus? We got put. We got to make it so that. You, you, you can't drink out of the same water fountain. Why? Because if I lose my special status, if everybody's like me, then I'll become special like everybody else. You think, I'm, you think I'm being silly. I'm not. It's real. So here's the new messianic stance that I've heard about. In an effort to bolster the messianic Gentile theology, It has been said that Ruth never converted. That she was the quintessential Messianic Gentile. No. That's out there. It's real. I couldn't believe it. Paul, of course. That's the source. Galatians. Come on, don't be stupid. Now, here's the problem. If Ruth never converted, what does that mean? It means there's no Mashiach. Why? Because you, have, you can't... First of all, marriage, a Jewish guy marrying a non-Jewish girl, that is a forbidden marriage is halakhically forbidden and therefore halakhically invalid. It means he can't be the Messiah because he's not even Jewish. Because Jewishness comes from the mother. 100% comes from the mother. The tribe comes from the father, but the Jewishness comes from the mother. So if you have a mommy and a daddy from two different tribes, Asher and Levi, then the child is is Asher. Mm -hmm. But if Asher marries France, the child is French. It's not Jewish. So that's the problem. So obviously... Everybody's excited about that theology. Oh, we've solved the Ruth revelation problem. We'll just tell everybody that Ruth was actually a Messianic Gentile. But then the house of cards of Mashiach falls, and the Jewish people are sitting back going, <laughs> we told you he wasn't the Messiah. Oh. But that is right. Manasseh just said that that would have also nullified David's kingship. So obviously that's, uh, we say in French, stupid. uh. (laughs) Now look, I'm going to say something here. Uh, Man, I don't have enough time. I I really do need another hour, but that's okay. Give me an extra 10 minutes. Got any extra 10 minutes? All right, come on. Listen, I want to I share this because I think it's important. Because we're, we're talking about conversion here and, and the importance of it. My family and I, we had a little spring break uh, getaway, and so we went down to, a, uh, to Corpus Christi. And uh, it was, uh, we went to the beach, but it was freezing, so... Whatever. Um, But the real reason we went to Corpus Christi is because I wanted to see, and yes, it was about me, I wanted to see the USS Lexington. It's a carrier. A carrier that was commissioned in 1943 and it served up until 1991. Fought in, of course, World War II and all of that. So the uh, Lexington was amazing. And while well, I learned some things about the Lexington, the original Lexington was sunk by the Japanese in the Battle of the Coral Sea. This particular ship was being built at the time, went by another name. But when they heard that the Lexington had been sunk, they renamed that ship they were building the Lexington. And the message was to the Japanese, you can sink the Lexington, but we're just going to build another Lexington so, Zeke and, and Rayford, who doesn't like ships at all, <laughs> came into my office this morning, and we were talking about the Lexington. I was just sharing to him that it was really cool. and I, in, in fact, I just want to make a PSA. If you haven't been to Corpus and seen the Lexington, you really need to go and plan to spend three to four hours there. It really is a really, really neat experience. There's lots there, a whole lot there. But anyway... Uh, the history of it, all the different things. It's really, really fun. And I think the girls had a good time, too. But, um, and, and, and if they didn't, I don't really care. <laughs> I'm kind of not kidding. But anyway. Um, but they enjoyed a nice hotel and whatever. So, so uh He comes to my office, I'm telling him about this Lexington, and he starts to kind of tear up, and he says, the beautiful thing about the Lexington was the idea of resolve. And I said, man, that is so amazing you said that because I wanted to address this issue just at least briefly this morning of resolve to help us. The reason the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, their hope in bombing Pearl Harbor was that if they could destroy our Pacific fleet that we our knees would buckle and that we would be so scared out of our minds that we would instantly sue for peace and that they would get everything they wanted and we would get nothing. Okay? They miscalculated American resolve because after they bombed Pearl Harbor and destroyed the Pacific Fleet, destroyed our most powerful battleships, it so infuriated us that we had the resolve that not only will we not surrender but we are going to destroy you to the uttermost and as a result of our resolve not only did we defeat the japanese we literally we literally liberated the world of tyranny because germany stupidly declared war on us the very instant they bomb Pearl Harbor and we said we're coming for you too <laughs> and we did and so the Lexington represents that resolve of the United States that you can sink our carrier but we're going to put one in the water and we're going to call it the same thing again in our ministry Sar Shalom is and you figured this out already extremely unique We've, we are doing something that has, I won't say now that I've read so much more history, it's, it's not that it's never been done, because there have been lapide groups throughout history that have popped up in the 1400s, 1600s. It's fascinating. We'll talk about that sometime. I don't have time to get into it now. But they were all snuffed out because of persecution. But they were literally like us. They were people who lived an authentic Jewish life. But believed in the Messiah, and they were referred to as Judaizers. They were ostracized by the church, but actually accepted in their day by Jews. Quite the, re- quite the reverse in a lot of things. But that's because Jews were so horribly persecuted. They, were, they, they just, everybody needs a friend, you know? <laughs> but anyway, what we're doing is unique, and many people say it can't be done. There's far more that say it shouldn't be done. And one of the attacks, that we get torpedoed with on a regular basis is threefold. One, I don't have any credentials from an Orthodox yeshiva. That's true, I don't. I don't. Why don't I? One word, Yeshua. I've applied before. I've taken some classes before. And no one will do anything for me. Why? Because I won't reject Yeshua. And I won't lie and pretend I don't believe in Him either. Because, you know, when you lie, that's all, blessing always comes with that. So, because I refuse to lie or denounce, I don't get to have the plaque on my wall. But you know what? I'm okay with that. We are too. Good, good, good. Number two, the attack is that what authority do we have? What, what orthodox group authorizes our ministry? Well, let's see. Since they all reject Yeshua, and that's the fundamental foundation of who we are, naturally they're not going to ex- endorse us, which means we have two choices. Either we can have the resolve to do what's right, or we can be snowflakes and pack up our bags and go home. And thirdly, the question becomes who authorizes our conversions? What who validates them? That's right, a voice from the back.
1: <laughs>
0: the answer to that question is in any synagogue, no matter what synagogue you go to, the Beit Dean of that synagogue validates that conversion. There is no universal overarching group that validates conversions. You say, what about Israel? Friends, that's all political over there. It's all politics. It's all politics. That's a big hot mess of who's a Jew and who's a convert. Hot mess. You don't want nothing to do with that. They reject converts of straight-up hardcore Orthodox here in the United States because they're not part of their little club over there. You realize the people that rule that little area of ministry, they're the Haredi. Haredi means hard. <laughs> I mean their level their level of stringency makes Habad look like they ain't even like their reform or something. Wow. So no credentials, no accreditation of Orthodox Jewish organization, no validation of, of conversion. Who would ever give me credentials? Who would ever validate our ministry? And whoever who would ever validate our conversions? Nobody ever will. Why? Because of Yeshua. Yeshua, Yeshua, Yeshua. Three strikes and you're out. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to pack my bags and go home because of that. That gives me resolve. I, I, I debated myself about sharing this little tidbit, but I want, a little, I want you to have a little glimpse into my personality. Because you don't get one very often. (laughs) And I don't know if I, maybe it's smart to share this, maybe it's not. But a little known fact about me, some of you know this, some of you don't. So this is an interesting little tidbit into the life of the the Rebbe. Uh, When I, my sport in high school, I was a martial art instructor. Yeah, I was a judo and taekwondo instructor. And uh, I did some other martial arts too, Thai kickboxing, that kind of stuff. But that was an instructor. That was I, I, that's, I didn't, wasn't all that great at, at baseball and football and all that. So what I did is I ended up getting into martial arts and I became an instructor. And so in the Marine Corps, I did some, some line combat training. Bill knows what I'm talking about. I'm older now, and so now I study Bursa, Smith & Wesson, Taurus, Glock. <laughs> but, uh, but I used to do this, and so I, I had a lot of fun doing it, but I was, I was uh, before I went to the core, I was really kind of a timid guy, and when I used to d- do matches, I would always be a little bit scared, frankly, and I don't know what scared me so much about it. It just bothered me, you know? It's like, I'm going to fight this person. He looks mean. looks like He's serious. And I did all this training, so I get into the match, and uh, at first I'm real scared and timid, and then the the first punch or kick would come, or grapple, or whatever it was, and I'd be like, "What? did you just hit me? (laughs) (laughs) And for me personally, that channeled like, oh, no, no, I I thought we were just playing around, and then that was it. (laughs) it's a true story. It's a true story. I really, I really did that. So uh, my personality is, is that when I get challenged like this, it inspires me to be like, oh, you shouldn't have said anything because now I'm going to be more aggressive Amen. than I was previous. Amen. Now, they reject us because of Yeshua. That's what you, if you're watching online, if you're, you have to understand that's the reason. I will not allow anybody to build a brick wall in front of The reason this is coming out is because it's about Ruth. This is Ruth as the convert. This is the whole motivation. I will not allow anybody to build a brick wall theologically in front of me and tell me I can't go over it. I'll knock it down. Now, I want to tell you, in case you're thinking, well, that's unprecedented. What you're doing is unprecedented. And I, it's crazy. I, no, listen, I said I didn't have any credentials. I didn't say I didn't have any learning. Right. Right. I don't have a piece of paper, but I'm not an idiot.
1: <laughs>
0: I've been doing this for over two decades. My wife and I have got pictures of us giving Satyrs 23 years ago. It's not like we just started doing this. Okay, My daughter asked me just last night, how many drashes have you done in your life? And I said, I don't know, at least 1,200 hours worth, just straight-line drashes, Weddings, funerals, other teachings, I don't know, does it even matter? So the point is, is it unprecedented? Anybody heard of the Baal Shem Tov? Baal Shem Tov, anybody heard of Baal Shem Tov? Anybody? Anybody heard of Maharala Prague? What about the Hafezheim? <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yes. time, Akiva, Maharala Prague, Baal Shem Tov, nobody, none of them had credentials. Right. <laughs> Maharala Prague, considered the greatest mastermind of Judaism of all time, practically, was an autodidact, which means he was self-taught. Same thing with Baal Shem Tov. Baal Shem Tov was basically an, an orphan who wandered out of the forest one day and said, I have a revelation from God. No yeshiva, no background, nothing. Um, not only was the Baal Shem Tov and Hasidism not accredited by any Orthodox organization, there was actually formal harem, formal bans written against them. I wish I had time. I, I intended to, to read some of these bans to you. In fact, I think I will. This is a ban. Anybody heard of the book Toldolt Yaakov Yosef? Yeah, it was burned in the city squares by the Vilmagon and by the Orthodox Jews because they considered Hasidism heri- heretical. It says the aim of the book and its supporters, this is a letter written to the Jewish communities of the Ukraine forbidding the book. It says the aim of the book and its supporters is to incite and alienate all of Jewry so that they should follow after them and no longer walk on the paths of the Holy Torah and of our forebearers of blessed memory. They were accusing the Hasidim of leading people away from Torah. Sound familiar? Mm-hmm. It says, their basic aim is to stop us from engaging in the diligent study of Torah, whether it be the plain text or the hidden Kabbalah. They call this book Beit Toldot Yaakov Yosef. And, it, and by the way, it says here, it has no rabbinical endorsement whatsoever. Wow. Wait a minute. The Hasidim were writing books with no rabbinical endorsement? So it says on Saturday, on Sabbath rather, of 20, 1781, the Vilna Gaon himself signed a harem forbidding Hasid- Hasidic books. And it goes on to say that these Hasidim will have no minion. At any synagogue, they will not be given shelter anywhere, even for a night. The meat that they slaughter must not be eaten. Neither shall you do business or negotiate with them on any level, nor shall anyone intermarry with them or conduct even burial rites for them. Shall I go on? It says, The Hasidim, may their name be blotted out, have separated themselves and taken the side of heresy and unbelief, putting to naught the glory of the Torah and the laws of the wise rabbis. It is a righteous act to uproot and white out idol worship wherever it idol worship wherever it exists, and to scatter them, that is the hasidim, hither and yon like chaff driven by the wind. I could go on and on and on. Today, the Hasidim are the ones in Israel telling whose conversion is valid and who isn't valid. Let me repeat that because you just missed it. The Hasidim are the ones in Israel today telling whose conversions are valid and not valid. Did you know that Hasidim were considered heretics on that level? The Vilna Gon died thinking that they were heretics. That lasted for nearly a century. Before they were even accepted as a valid Judaism, we have ninety two years to go. (laughs) So, have resolve. Have resolve. What we're doing today has never been done, and people say it can't be done. Just like they, said a, just like they say a, a Moabitess can't convert. But nothing great has ever happened unless somebody stepped out and did something that has never been done before. There's so much more to share. We'll get to it next week with God's help.
2: dee da, da. We